0: You're listening to the Art Problems Podcast, episode 23. I'm your host, Patty Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And it's also the show where we talk about what's going on inside the art world and how you can navigate it more easily. And today we're here to talk about day jobs, what most artists do to make a living, and why we all, the guests that I have here, think that it's important to abandon the stigma around having jobs that support other parts of our lives. So, here with me, today in the studio, I'm using air quotes here because this is just a a virtual talk, is Catherine Haggerty. She is an artist and co-founder of the uh, New York Crick Club and Macon Reed, an artist and network member. Welcome both of you.
1: Hi, glad to be here. Yeah. Hi, Patty. Thank you so much for setting this up and great to meet you, Macon.
0: Uh, So Catherine, I think, First of all, I wanted to start with you because you actually had the idea for this podcast because you had a lot of opinions on this. And uh, what started this whole conversation, I think, was a post that I had posted on Instagram about how uh, there really was nothing wrong with um, having a second job. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your reaction to that.
1: Yeah, thank you. I thought it was a great post. And I love how your posts can demystify and open up conversations like this. So, you know, I'm always like watching them and looking out for them. And the reason I think I have like a pretty visceral response to these sort of conversations is because I think it can allow other people into a world which is just really difficult to survive and sustain. And so it, it 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 breaks down this sort of um, wall of security or um, this wall of like having everything figured out is talking about these things publicly, whether or not it's an Instagram post or a podcast. And so I'm really interested in this idea. And I know that there are multiple truths and I know that there are multiple realities for other people like and we can get into that and what that means. But. The reason I'm particular about language is because language matters, right? So when I teach or mentor or speak about art or anything, I do try to be specific with language. And when you use terms that eliminate 99.9% of other experiences, you are siphoning this idea of what success is into a tiny, tiny pinhole that is not just based on your skill, your intellect, or your ability but on the environmental proximity that you have been born into, have been married into, or have gotten out of work or hard luck or combination. And so we can't talk about art, people's art, success, galleries, or money if we don't talk about those other variables. And so language like this topic, which is the the air quotes full-time artist, to me is interesting, it's not negative, but I think it's interesting to figure out how we can better discuss what a life is as an artist, And one that encompasses many variables, um, not just the one that is about production of the material
0: that is for sale. So I have a lot of opinions, but that's where I'll start. (laughs) Well, I'm just wondering, like when you talk about terms that reduce uh, experience, the experience for 99% of the participants or population or people in our industry, what terms are you talking about specifically?
1: So the, I, I, I try to avoid these terms. And by the way, I haven't always, and I don't, I, I just want to say that I'm not perfect. And I'm just trying to um, expand my understanding of things as I progress. But I'm referring to terms like professional. I'm referring to things like, well, that's a little more complicated, but mostly full time. Someone says I'm a full time artist. And so the reason I think that that's a limiting phrase is that that makes it about production and money. Because then you're basing that language off of the term, which is based off of a career, which is a career that in other markets and in other fields has a system that one can climb by achieving certain standards or getting degrees and putting in work with a logical upward scale. And as Peter Sheldahl spoke about in a lecture at SVA, I want to say 2009, you can Google it, but it's a great lecture where he talks about how he hates the word career in a lot of ways because it mimics and models something that actually art is a little bit antithetical to. Now, I also want to acknowledge that there are things you can do to improve your career, in air quotes, meaning everyone has different goals and everyone is allowed to hone in their professional skills and practices. I am not against those things, but when you say things like full-time, you're talking about a 40-hour work week, and that in itself is sort of absurd because good art can be made in 20 hours a week or 60 and, and, and by all means, not substantial art can be made in 40 hours a week or work that isn't necessarily like um, even your best work. And so it, it makes too tight of a correlation to time invested to worth. And if that were true, there'd be a lot more artists out there actually, specifically women, that would be showing in museums and galleries and selling. I mean, if you look at how art sells on the market, it's like, what, 2% women in the auctions? Women have been working quite hard in art forever. And so I don't think you can make these correlations without some kind of accident or incident. Like there's gonna be a repercussion. And what happens with language is if it's not used correctly or at least generously with a little bit of gray, gray area, people start to feel bad. And what I hate about that conversation is that I mentor and and I'm a critic to thousands of people. And I don't want anyone to feel like they're not good enough because they have to caretake for their parents or they have a baby or they have a, you know, they're not able-bodied in a way that allows them to just produce paintings or drawings that are going to sell. And I think that that's a really limiting, conservative approach. And uh, it doesn't help the dialogue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Megan, I see you nodding your head. And I think I'm going to guess that partially that's because uh, Catherine is covering a lot of topics that you and I have talked about too, specifically about time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I think it's such a, it's so complicated even in listening to you now, Catherine, because I totally agree. And I think that there really, so much of the stuff you're saying is really true. And then there's this sort of other thing that twists into it that I think about, which is that you know, in art school, I feel like there's also this idea that the art should only be for the art. Right. So then like I know that when I went to VCU, which is like an incredible state school as a Pell Grant student, and I was really ex- like so grateful to get to go there because not every state has such a great school available. But um, we didn't learn. I mean, professional practices, even there's that word professional. But we didn't learn a lot about how to make our money from the work. or And there was this sort of idea that we shouldn't talk about it as a career or a profession, which kind of has a sneaky class piece coming in where it's kind of assumed that you have some other source of money or that you won't actually have to be working for money as an artist. So there's there's just so much to unpack around it. And yeah, I I think about it a lot. And I, I think part of why we don't talk about it enough in the arts, I mean, for one, because the whole economy and like the capital A art world is so complicated and messy on a global level, and it just gets really hard to talk about. But also, On top of that, I think class is different than a lot of other identity markers because it really shifts over time. You know, like somebody can start out in a wealthy family, have something crazy happen and then end up in a completely different place or vice versa. Or like in my case, I've had friends kind of try to, in a supportive way, refer to me as having grown up working class because I grew up without a lot of money. But I say that doesn't feel right or true to my experience because both of my parents who had significant disabilities had gone to college, so I had access to a sort of, you know, college-educated way of speaking in the home, and so I I find even it's hard for us to describe class, and I think it's really hard to make it visible in things like applications for different opportunities and things, so it's, I just, it's a really interesting topic, and I'm really glad to be here, and Catherine, I'm glad you kind of said let's talk about this, because it's really nuanced. Agreed.
1: (laughs) It's it's so agreed. And, and can I just jump in on one thing Makin said really well? And yeah, I, please. I went to Rutgers MFA in 2009, 10 and 11, and there was no classes on this topic. And by the way, so two things can happen at once. I can have an opinion about language that is sometimes limiting or and, and puts people out. But I also understand that there are truths, right, that there are careers in art and that there is professional practices. And I'm not against those Um, I'm not against like those principles being true while also saying, I think there needs to be a better way to describe what it means to be an artist or what it means to be a human or a full time person. Um, And so so that's the gray stuff that, by the way, I don't think is addressed in higher education as as much because the curriculum until just recently hasn't had the push to change it. And programs like I am running and Patty is running and many other people are beginning to give people information that was absent during all of these fancy degrees we got. And so I do wanna have compassion for that experience. I think that those professors wanna get to the meat of the work and they wanna make the people's work better and they don't want to have them be obsessed with like money right away. And they really, they gotta get their work to be challenged. And you can't challenge your work if you're worried about sales in a way so you know i mean you can but it, it's quite difficult and so those conversations don't happen there although i do think that that is changing but you know i i do think you're right it's about transparency and i think that not to sound like i know the answer but it's actually quite difficult to be a great educator yeah and a practicing artist and also teach someone about the theoretical frameworks the art history references the formal techniques and say All right, but look, I know that you're a person. You got to make a living, so like, let's just focus in on this body of work, which is small. (laughs) (laughs) Work, and I I just want to be. I try to do that, but I know, and I know other people, like Patty and other other critics and mentors, do too. I try to say, like, I'm going to give you the business on the formal and conceptual and (laughs) historical, but then I'm also going to acknowledge that, like, in a perfect world, of course, you'd be making like 90 foot paintings in your barn while sipping coffee and going to a yoga class (laughs) in the morning. But I know that you have two kids and. yeah Yeah, you have a small house so like let's start where we are and for you to get your work out there that might mean 16 by 20s and that's not a failure either so two truths in education and in business and leadership should be happening at once and that is the teaching gap that doesn't exist in most institutions and is the reason why programs like ours exist
0: you know one of the things that i was thinking about um as you were talking about the gap that existed is that like you know, I think it's tempting, at least for me to go back and think like, oh, gosh, these guys really failed us. Like, why weren't they doing this when we were when we were in school? And like, why has it been this way for so many years? But I was listening to this podcast this morning while I was doing my run, and it was like 99% invisible. They were talking about the history of the yeah. kitchen and how... Uh, There was a whole movement to remove the kitchen from the home, and this was part of a feminist movement and all the rest. And then they talked about the reintegration of the kitchen and how that followed technology. And there was one quote in there that really stuck with me, Mm -hmm. which was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, so it won't be perfect, but basically it's the idea that technology, it just creates the demand for more work. So because one of the problems that people had when they had the, like the kitchen um, that worked better and was sort of souped up was not just that they could do things faster, but that there was a demand to do things better and to do more of it. So you just ended up with more work. With more and work. I think that's kind of where we are now, where there is a demand. The demand is higher for more labor And higher standards of that labor. And so you kind of feel like you have to get caught up all the time, which is not a good place to be in.
2: And I think we're also in an interesting time with that technology also giving visibility to all sorts of people who didn't have it. And it is sort of switching the power dynamics a little bit, too. And so I think something that I just kept thinking about after reading that post is really visibility that I don't, I don't have the answers for figuring out the balance of real talk about money world and focusing on making good work in school. Um, but I do really crave people just acknowledging their own class privilege or their own class experience. Like for me, occasionally, I've seen artists speak about their class background a little bit, but it rarely comes up in artist talks or things like that. And yeah. I think that... It does two things. It makes it so that we can see, like, you know, how much work someone maybe has done and really acknowledge and value that, that we might not that might not get shown in the work. But it also makes it so that people in the audience go, oh, people like me can potentially have a career, that, you know, have an art practice that is significant in their life. Um, I find it hard to even talk about this without now, Catherine, you have me thinking about words like career and professional <laughs> So I, I think that it, it I just love to see it be um, become more of a visible part of our conversations because it's it's absolutely present and there really is a stigma in talking about it, you know, um, or it feels like somehow you're breaking a rule if you acknowledge like, you know, I didn't come from this background or whatever. And even and when I apply to things, I'm, I'm aware that I need to kind of, you know, make up for not having gone to Yale, you know, and. In my applications for things, so and I and I didn't even apply to Yale because I remember their application fee was like a hundred something dollars, and I was really broke at the time, and I was just offended by that idea. So I was like, you know, screw Yale or whatever. And now I go, oh, I didn't understand how much of a gatekeeper of class and privilege and opportunity that that school is for people. So. I don't know if I'm if I'm being fully coherent here but I I do feel like visibility is just a big part of it and just even practicing bringing it into the conversation would would start to make some of these shifts around respecting people who have different jobs to support their practice like start to happen.
1: Yeah, I think that's really well put. And I mean, you're right about visibility. I, when I do lectures now in the last year, I've been doing a lot. And thankfully, I'm, I'm very happy to go to schools and talk to students. And it's always like, oh, talk about your work. But I find myself making presentations, actually, much more about um, the life of an artist and um, the things that I'm doing now, because um, in addition to my art, but I have a slide that's called Art Math. And I I basically just show them like what it means to like have a middle school teaching job and what that salary looks like. And then what does it mean to be a bartender for Like I just break down the numbers and then like just what it means to cost to live somewhere. And so this is another part of the conversation is that visibility and transparency is important to a degree. It's also important to understand that success is an elusive noun, which is always defined by the context of its use. And that success for some people might be truly like living not near a city, low rent, low overhead, low responsibility, quiet bird watching and painting like that might be a beautiful, successful life that they could sustain periodic sales off of. Right. If they have this kind of situation, success for someone else might be like, I need to be in a city because I need to be in a social framework um, more readily because that helps my mental health whatever. But with that comes a higher degree of, of cost and uh, responsibility. And so that person's success is going to look really different. And the job, I think, is always to make the best of the situation um, and to really like lean into what you really want. But I was speaking with um, Josephine Halverson the other day, who's the chair of uh, graduate opinion at Boston University, and we were talking actually about success. And she has a great way of putting it, which I won't quote, but um, was talking about artists having a really great understanding of their version of success so that no one can impose their idea of success on you, right? And so why language matters, like saying like, well, if you're not in the studio 40 hours a week, you're not committed. If you're not like doing this, you're not committed. And I hear this a lot. That is someone else's will being imposed on you. And if you don't have your own version of your level of success for your family or your mental health or your body, you're going to succumb to that idea of someone else's success. And that's, that's a huge part of a lot of this is like people having... You know the will to be like well my success is that I get to my studio four days a week for five hours in the morning I take care of my kids in the afternoon and I do some like evening like work on my computer like that's a successful life and if you didn't believe in your life and your your understand your parameters you might think that the the painting bro who walks in your studio for a crit who tells you you're not committed because you teach is right but if you know that that's not right for you and your family you won't be imposed on but a lot of that comes with maturity but also understanding like that those kind of um, limitations essentially are just for certain people and that's their their version of success and it's not yours
2: i think that's a great a great point to think about success like i was just sitting here thinking like what is what is my definition of success which i think for my work is like is the art impacting people like is it creating meaningful relationships like my favorite thing is if i create a project about a subject and then people start doing something like with my eulogy for the dyke bar project after the first one I did in 2015 and a group of folks from the New York City Dyke March started organizing an event that was doing some work around the same topics, but it had nothing to do with me. It kind of like had legs and walked and started moving things in the world. And like that to me is a, is absolutely like how I feel inspired and excited to keep making work, which is you know, my idea of success. But at the same time, there's this sort of um, constant, like I need, money to somehow be able to support a practice like that, that isn't oriented towards, you know, sales in the same way. And so I feel like I'm, I can be clear on my idea of success, but then the the pressures of the economy we live in are so real. And, and I'm thinking about what it means to be outside of a city, which I think is huge, is, is I I really think it's important to talk about the role that education has played in changing arts communities over the last however many years, as we've needed to more and more, go get a BFA and then an MFA to really access a lot of the resources and opportunities and conversations and everything. And I think about it as like, you know, these kids who are going to, or young people, um, often young, going to get a BFA, they're going to a place that might be kind of random that they didn't live in before a lot of the times, right? A new city. And they're often going into debt and investing four years into this community and these resources. And then Coming out, and if they keep going, then a couple of years later they're in another place with some other random people that they often leave. And so I think that that has really changed the sort of organic community making of artists in different communities, where you know the the way that a sort of movement or a style or a way of thinking and making could maybe build more organically is instead getting sort of chopped up by these temporary academic communities, and then instead of investing the money in you know shared you know, resources like tools and things like that, they're, they're putting it into the institution and racking up this debt. And so I just go, Oh, what would, especially as someone who spent a lot of time in DIY and punk, you know, weirdo, queer off the grid communities, I see how the sort of creative spirit just feels more, I don't know, more like vibrant and exciting to me in a lot of those spaces, because it hasn't been sort of chopped up and, and, trained within academic institutions. Like in New Orleans, there's a lot of incredible art and performance and weird stuff happening all the time, but it's not informed by those. And it's because it's sort of really grown roots up from a specific place that it remains. So, and that, that of course, ties into access to college and education and, and all of the class stuff that's connected to that before you even get to the day job question.
1: But I, I do think, Megan, that there are there are so many, I think this is also, it's about, it's about age too. I mean, I don't go back to New Brunswick and hang out. And I talked to like five people from my MFA program and I definitely don't go back to my undergrad. Um, but th- those are vehicles for like, and I I, refer, I think of them as like, resi- like in a way it's like a residency. It's like, it's like two years out of place to like get a studio and a group of friends that you would never have met. And then you like work from there. Um, I never feel like concerned about like, Being like, oh, I have to go back or like that community's lost. It's a transitory position on purpose. And I think there are there do end up being small circles of arts or academic programs that facilitate around university towns and homes. And I think that that will always be true. And mostly that's the faculty that goes back to teach at those schools that want to set up home and have a nice life there. But I think there's an organic amount of uh, small group and large group um, artists collaborations at different capacities all around the country. Um, I just think it happens a little bit after like your 20s and 30s. I think it happens in your 40s when you're like all right my husband and I got this place or my partner and I and we're gonna like set up a friend group here and that happens organically or through Patty's program or, or mine or other programs. Um, so I mean I, I understand exactly what you're saying but I think like if anything now we do have a position of accessibility with the internet and understanding how to meet up with people and and that's that that's a huge uh, positive. I mean I I think that there's people that take my classes that live very, very far away and um, wouldn't be able to ever come to New York even if it was an option fiscally because of you know just family issues or, or personal things. so I think I think there's a lot of hope for like the possibility of the art post institution it you know it just takes well, it takes time and time is actually you know, money so that's that's the actual thing I think
2: yeah maybe I'm being ageist but I do think I agree like and and it's ironic I'm saying this because I bounce around the country more than almost anyone I know compulsively Um, (laughs) so you know I've got my fingers in a lot of I'm always all over the place so it's funny for me to be like local but um I guess I just mean more like there's an energy in young people that is different than an energy of those of us in our 40s right in terms of like sort of pushing for radical new shifts and changes. And, and a lot of like, when I think about movements that have sort of broken out historically that have meant a lot to me, you know, it's not that those artists didn't go to college um, or access those spaces at all, but it didn't feel like academia had as central of a role in dictating how, um, how artists, you know, responded to things happening. Um and and made new work and pushed things. So it's I don't think it's like a, you know, school's all bad and, and we should all just hang out with the people that we, you know, live in community with, you know, wherever. But I do think it's it's something that we kind of take for granted is how these educational institutions are sort of shaping our trajectories and our time, especially for people in their twenties. So yeah, it's just it's something I've thought about a decent amount, especially with the with the way that what school you go to seems to really shape opportunities.
1: I think that the school you go to shapes opportunities as much as you're willing to shape your opportunities. I really, I think that there is some truth to a few schools being like, you know, having a certain proximity to institutions or museums. I, I mean, I'm referring to Yale basically, or maybe <laughs> a few other schools, but I, I actually do think it's really about like what an artist makes their experience then and then after nobody care i don't care where anyone went to school i don't i don't think any and and many gallerists do not care and like almost by principle don't want to know too much about that
0: some gal some gallerists really do care i mean i know i know gallerists that really built their program off yale
1: right so absolutely i'm like so i know that both both things are true i just yeah. Anyway. So, I mean, school can do a lot for you, but it's it's also just what you're willing to get out of it. I I don't think, I think you've really got to work your tail off at Yale to get, to impress people to so then, you know, and you won't survive a school like that anyway. You, you wouldn't progress. I they're, yeah. they're they're pretty tough. I mean, even at Rutgers, some people didn't get past the first year because the faculty was like, this is not substantial. So I, I think it, it it is, you're right. It's proximity. It is school. There is a privilege there in certain schools, but I think also it's the the mentors or the faculty that you get to work with and really like honing in on those relationships and, and, and all of that after. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's no, no doubt a positive thing, but I was having dinner with my friend the other night who's an artist and he was, we were talking and he said, you know, also a really good Instagram account is is like the equivalent of a Yale degree. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't have MFA's and they're just really good at the internet and they're showing now that bigger places than he and I are. And it's fine, you know, but it doesn't mean it's bad or good, but like they have a real savviness for that kind of um promotion and that's that's good too. That's a different generation. So there's there's some yeah, proximity matters for sure. But also some people are like
0: they're like also oh, just really good at the internet. So they're, you know. Uh, come you know. on. Who has a better account than you, Catherine? <laughs> you have a great Instagram account. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> I, I listened to your
1: Instagram, uh, your, your feedback on Instagram. I was in, I was traveling recently. I was, I was telling my, I was trying to encourage my husband to listen to your short podcast. Cause they're like, really, I love how they're like really concise. <laughs> I was like, I should listen to Patty's Instagram advice or something. Um, which was, was helpful actually. Um, and I shared with my community, of course. Um, but no, I mean, there's some people that I, I will be clear, like, well, they're they're better at it in a way. Um, they they go viral. They then show at bigger galleries. They then make a quote unquote living. They like they have this whole declaration of marketing as their skill as much as their art. It's a it's a it's a it's a segment of the population that is very. I'm not particularly interested in doing those kinds of things, but I also really think that that's awesome for them. And I'm like, you go, girl. You're making some money. But um, I, I think it just can be a little bit dangerous. And I do think one should see both sides of the coin because it, <laughs> well, it's just, you know, it, it can put a pressure on production and then that can affect the work. And I think that the market is not stable and you can't name anyone in the 90s that made Rocket Star success, maybe except for Damien Hurst, who's at the same level. I mean, there's it's, it's pretty difficult to sustain this kind of like up, uprise on the market and also in exhibitions. And, and with that comes a burnout. And I, and I do actually think that staying Staying ahead of the market a little bit is actually smart for the longevity of your career, so I, I don't envy a 25 year old who's selling out shows all the time and thinking that they have to produce 30 paintings a month. I don't envy that at all. I don't think that's sustainable, but maybe it is and I'll be wrong and that would be fine, but I think that, that that's a dangerous way to like look at this idea of like how to take care of yourself, but also how to cultivate culture. Um, and that will change with time and age for everyone. But
2: I'll jump in and say that I, I do think like I like the okay. So my background is somebody who like only I went to state schools and uh, feel proud of that. I went to community college uh, at Great Community College in California, and then I graduated from VCU in Richmond, and then I went to UIC in Chicago with the full fellowship that they offered, which is like, so I'm really lucky that I was able to like access these things. But I do think that like, and and I know a lot of galleries, if the work is really good, will show the work regardless. But I think that for anybody out there listening, who's had the kind of experiences I have, like, I definitely know people who went to like California College of Arts and then went to Columbia and are much younger and kind of accessing things at a, a more Rapid rate than some of us who took longer. Like, we talked about this a little bit in the post, but that it takes, it's not that you can't, but for some of us, it takes longer to build visibility. So, like, I worked a lot of just like random odd jobs and things for a long time before I kind of got visible enough. And people don't know this a lot of the time about my own work, but like the project that kind of launched me into like, opening up more opportunities um, was was that Project Eulogy for the Dyke Bar. The only way that I was able to do that project was that in Memphis, I got hit by three cars sitting in a stoplight. Um, Like I wasn't even driving. And the woman who hit me wasn't insured. So after all my 20,000 medical bills and all this stuff, I got $8,000. And that was like, what I used to kind of float me through four years of residency is like just as my baseline and then adding more working and kind of keeping myself afloat. And then I hit that point. And then it was just funny because like a year later um, was when I, I got nominated twice for things for artists under 30. And it was just funny because I was over 30. So it was like, cool, you guys think I look really younger than I am. But I had to turn them down and be like, I can't. But here are these other students I know. Who are amazing and I think they're really good artists and I really support them. And they're younger and they've gone to these like fancier private schools and you know, and they they got some of those fellowships. So it's just to say that like I think sometimes it's not that it's everything, but I think for some people it really does affect like how long it takes to build up a build up a visibility and then ageism and gender stuff come into that too, you know, as we get older. So you know, I think it's both and like, you know, screw you don't, I'm like very much a believer. You don't have to go to Columbia or Yale, but I know that I had to work like double, triple time. And because of that, I don't, I didn't have time for having kids, um, having a partner, like moving around all the time, you know, it's, I'm happy with where I am, but it did affect things and it was hard. And I think that doesn't get seen sometimes. Um,
0: Well, and I think this is something that we were sort of, we've been talking about in this podcast and on that, on that uh, Instagram post as well, that like people have different, you have different versions of success. You have your own particular, for lack of a better word, journey. Like this is like your path is unique And I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough is how uh, experience and class impact the speed at which we uh, can do things inside the art world. Do they always impact like how we can do things? No. Do they often impact what we do? Yes. And I think that's and I think that is part of the sensitivity that we have to terms like full-time artist or career or any of these things that are kind of loaded because, at least in this industry, it often also uh, is associated to, uh, like, different classes. And those are things that, I, I mean, I think, Megan, you talked earlier about, Uh, class being something where where like that you can shift through but it's also I I think it's very entrenched it's very difficult it was very very difficult for me personally anyway to become comfortable with anybody who had Mm -hmm. a lot of money I remember like I visiting somebody was a friend of a friend or whatever who was like a diamond dealer on the like (laughs) who had this like enormous house that overlooked Sixth Avenue on Canal. You just see all the um, traffic. And I was there for like some stupid trunk sale. You know, this was like a model who was married to the diamond dealer. And I like, I showed up in like my H&M shirt. It was like the middle of summer. I had to go to the bathroom immediately and like freshen up because I smelled really badly. Like (laughs) it was like I nearly vomited. But, like, after that, after that i think I think it was my boyfriend who just said, you know they're just there's nothing it's just money, and for whatever reason after that, I was kind of okay, my like was just like, oh, this is just something that's in my that's in my head, but I don't think that I am alone necessarily in feeling uncomfortable with." such a disparate revenue, (laughs) amounts of revenue streams, you know, like it's just a completely different life and you can't, it makes socializing with people difficult too, because you can't do basic things like go out to dinner with somebody who might want to spend a thousand dollars and it's like buying a stick of gum for them. But for you, it's like, you know, a third of your rent, or half your rent, or whatever.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a. I mean, I think we can all relate to that feeling of being a little bit uncomfortable in those situations. And I think you're right; it is kind of ingrained. And I just did a lecture down in Memphis. Um, Derek Fajor's nonprofit called Contemporary Arts Memphis to young teens, trying oh, to he's get. he's great! Great, fabulous. You, Derek's so awesome. What he's built is really cool. And so my husband and I flew down to talk to the students and crit their work and give them some insight about what it means to be professors at Pratt, artists, people that do things. And I think it was helpful, I hope. But I think the the class thing is really real. And what I said in this talk, I think a few times was necessity is also the mother of invention, which is a phrase I, of course, do not Mm claim. But I just want to also talk about the alternative aspect, right? Like we're talking a lot about people that have this privilege. They have the money. Let's say they, they have a lawyer, a husband, and so they can paint full time. Like I get what that means, right? That's a little frustrating, but it's also really real that there are so many people that come from lesser situations um, that it's ingrained and they have a work ethic that is like they have no backup. And because of that, I could name many people, but just because I haven't asked their permission, I won't name them, um, are really successful in the art world. Like, I mean, market successful, like global and I know them and I know that like we were all bartending together in the West Village in our twenties, like trying to make a living. Like I bartended until I was 35. I'm I'm 39, to be clear. Um, so it was just a few years ago I stopped bartending for like a partial living, in addition to teaching and selling art occasionally. And so we we I remember asking this one friend who I thought was fabulous and now is just worldly famous, what like what's gonna happen? Like, you know, and, and she just said, I'm gonna stop doing this bartending, I'm gonna give it a try. I'm gonna figure out what to do. I'm gonna to try to just go for it in the studio. And I actually remember thinking, well, you're nuts um, because like, I know my financial situation, I'm the last of seven kids. Like I've always had jobs. I've I've always had three. I always went to state schools. I've never had any backup plan. And I thought, well, that's crazy. And so there's an, there's an alternative thing that can happen too when someone actually doesn't come from anything that they are like so determined that they have to make their Instagram a marketing success, or they have to put in 20 hours a day. And like, they somehow get this lucky magical break to get this dealer in the Hamptons who starts their career. Like the example, there's the the privilege that can happen from comfort. And then there's also the privilege that can happen from just being so hard bent that like, I know I have to make my life a certain way. And another, like a slightly personal story, I was engaged to someone in my twenties who was abusive. And he told me I need a rich husband to be an artist. And it took all of my courage to leave and build a new life. And when I was 30, you know, starting over, living illegally in warehouses, teaching middle school and bartending in the West Village and taking trains to Bushwick and like freaking out. And I just rebuilt my life, but I did it because I needed to. And I was not gonna let someone tell me that my art was contingent on a fiscal person or situation. And so I don't know if anything I've ever built or in my life would be here if I didn't have my back pressed up against the wall. So I feel really grateful for my life and I'm not annoyed by it. And I feel just like it's my purpose, but that is one position to feel. And it's also another position to be a mentor to people and see that they feel kind of bummed out that they can't put in more hours so that's why i'm really specific about language and i just want to be clear i'm not against these terms ever being used i'm i'm pro terms with explanation and caveats and a little bit of grace and language so that people can understand two things at once that's what i'm pro for because i do realize that some paintings cannot be made in disparate chunks of three hours and off and on jobs a hundred percent you cannot make a, an oil painting like I, I could refer to certain people in in three hours before your shift, and then the three hours after. It takes a different acumen, a different dry time. But there's other mediums and versions of art production or whatever you want to refer to practices that can be more flexible. And I do think your job is to understand how to be flexible so you can be successful in your own right. And flexibility is one of those things you have to learn over life because you won't get anywhere if you don't like budge in your ways or acclimate. So that was a lot of information, but I just think that there's (laughs) There's the privilege, but then there's also the privilege of feeling like there's no backup plan and I'm gonna invent what's what I need to have exist. And that can be, be pretty great as
0: well. And there's a lot of examples for that. I, I, totally, mean, I don't know that um, I would call that a privilege of I having gonna... your back up against the wall and you're because right, it right. doesn't work out for everyone. Like just to to be clear, like sometimes sometimes I think it would be great if all the stories were positive stories and that when you had your backup against the wall, like what happened was that you came out and things, things worked out, but it doesn't, it doesn't always work out that way. I do think that one of the like kind of exciting things that we're all involved with though is, um, and I think we all share is that we have had our backup against the wall and I think we've made something out of it. And I, I do think that there is a space for new, more vibrant communities that are more supportive of each other and are more resistant to the kind of bullshit terms that have plagued the art world for decades.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really... Just feeling and appreciating what you were saying catherine and agree i, d- I do think privilege is like i think you were trying to say it, it can be a strength or a thing that yeah, helps you I more than privilege you know. I, yeah yeah I no understand. i i heard that too and <laughs> I, Patty, I t- you know i, I was like well, but I think that it, you know, that's definitely something that I've been coming at this point in my career to be really grateful for. I do feel like that, that being pushed against the wall or that fire helped me work harder. And I didn't, you know, I, I know some people who did go to all of the schools and get all of the things and they're really struggling to, to kind of move their career forward and feel sad. And I think there is so that, and I think that also like some of us end up doing weird new things with materials because they're the only things we can yeah. You know, afford or whatever. Um, and so I think that, that there is a lot of ingenuity from it. And I, I, the main thing, though, for me is just that it's even in this conversation, it gets like a little hard to talk about things, right? Because class is just, it's so loaded and we're not practiced at speaking about it. And I think in this call, I'm also just wanting to name that like it really intersects with all these other things. So when we talk about like Patty, you having to go in to that place and feeling like sick, you know, um, because it felt so intense. Um, I think it's just that some of us need to do more internal work to get somewhere, you know, and there, then it yeah. intersects with all these things we haven't named yet. Like, you know, I am a white, able-bodied U.S. citizen, et cetera, you know, and that that gives my class placement a completely different one in terms of all the internal work that someone might need to go get through if they were a person of color or an immigrant or, you know, non-native English speaker in this country or whatever, you know, you want to put out there. And, and I think that that's, that's why conversations about class are so important, is because they are really hard, you know, and and they do shift. and I, I know there are studies that say that our sense of class. I remember reading one a long time ago. I have no idea where it was from, but that by the age of eleven, roughly, we kind of have a sense of where we belong in the ladder of of capitalist life, right? And like, and and that that kind of ties into our personal value. So even if we do shift up or down, some of that stuff really does get entrenched at a young age, and it just takes like a level of like working through things. And, and I think ultimately, if I could go back and be, you know, a wealthier person or how I am, I am really grateful for where I am. It's also really fucking hard some days, you know, I think that part of the like DIY punky spaces that I spent a lot of time in when I was younger, especially like that that scrappiness was what made them more dynamic and interesting. Um, But I think, again, it's about visibility and just the fact that these things aren't talked about that often. Or, you know, a friend of mine here in Los Angeles where I'm visiting is working as a, he's doing some kind of coding work. I'm a Luddite, so I don't know computer stuff, but he's doing some kind of coding work. And when he tells people he's a computer programmer now, he says their face just like dies inside, you know, but he's also a brilliant poet and filmmaker. And so it's just... I just think we just need to practice like naming things talking about it and knowing that the conversation is going to be like both and and all at once all the time you know yeah
1: i i agree i mean and i think you know i just want to say that i understand intellectually that someone could go to a studio from nine to five and i understand intellectually what that will have what will produce right uh what, what that might mean but some painters need truly eight hours, I'm just speaking in painting because I'm a painter, I understand there are other mediums, but like some kinds of materials you know, require this time. And some people have exciting ways to make it happen. They'll work a week straight, work a week at the, as a nurse, right? They'll do a week straight in the studio, a week as a nurse, like Robert Navi used to drive trucks and say like he would request the shifts that were like 14 days straight so you could have 14 days of painting, you know, before he got picked up by Pace and all these great places because he knew he needed that chunk of time. So there's just so many ways to do things. And I'm really, whatever anything works for anyone, I'm really for. Um, I I think that also, I do think occasionally in your life that it is good to say, fuck it, I'm going to take my savings and like, see what I can do in a month, just for my brain, just for my hands, like see what I can make and not have any expectations. I think those adventures are, are really important as well. And I think you can't have it all at the same time. And so I sometimes fall victim to that because I'm an ambitious person and I want a lot, but I'm also responsible for myself and my husband and my family. And I have to take care of things, but I also like what I do. But then sometimes I'm like, what could I do if I just did nothing but make paintings for a year? And I think that there might be like sabbaticals or like personal gifts to yourself where you're like, all right, three months of like none other things, right? I'm just trying to say that I think it's good to sometimes take a chance if you are able to and take a month of like just trying to make your work with no other things in your brain if you have that privilege. But if you don't, so, make the best of it. And like welcome to how everyone is operating, basically.
0: So I'm curious about your both of your opinions on this. Do you think it would be of any benefit to um, artists if they were to think about, okay, like I'm going to take a chunk of money, a chunk of my savings, and just spend this month just making art if they were to say this is a business decision like is there any benefit of saying that versus uh this is just some time I'm spending my studio
1: so yes and I'll just jump in right away because the term business indicates <laughs> that it's going to be money money is the reward yeah. it's an ROI right return on investment you can't think about art as an ROI in terms of fiscal you have to think about art and I'm sorry I'm, I'm being declarative but In business, you can talk about an ROI, return on investment. I'm gonna put in a bunch of money to my team and I'm gonna make sure they're well-equipped so that we can better work next year. I'm gonna give my team a week of pay time off so that they are better to work next month, right? These are things you can do that um, are about wellness or about your brain and about morale. And in the studio of an artist, I think it is important to take occasionally, if you can do it, totally air quotes here, a week, even just two weeks. Um, if you can do a half a year, bless you, do it. But not because it will get you more fiscal gain, but because it might help you just clean out the cobwebs, understand what's important to you, be alone, be okay with being alone. But if you start to think of it as this ROI return on investment fiscally, then you're gonna come into a lot of anxiety and worry about what that will do. And I'm not saying that you won't concern yourself with money during that time. I'm just saying it's a good mental practice just like a business owner should say, hey, I'm gonna give you a paid time off for two weeks because you deserve it. And when you come back, I know you're gonna be excited and ready to work and we're all gonna improve from that. So we can't think about like this idea of like, is it a good business idea without the holistic conversation about what a good business idea is? Because I think it's about the whole person. And I might need three weeks of just like looking at the sand and making two drawings. And that might make a year's worth of work that is infinitely better that I couldn't have gotten if I didn't give myself hours of looking at the sand and making two drawings. So as long as you can separate the fiscal responsibility from those adventures, uh, if you can, if you have that luck, then I'd say go for it if you can.
0: Yeah. The reason I was asking about this is that I, I sometimes find that, or I often find that one of the things that we don't value enough as uh, like creative individuals is the cost of our time. And so if we're able to say like, this is how much this time costs, it's helpful. But I also feel like, like you're saying, Catherine, like if you start thinking about this as a return on investment, it gets too depressing, you know, like because it doesn't have the same kind of return as a regular business. So, uh, but by the same time, by the same token, I think it's really important that we're at least taking steps to take care of ourselves and understand yeah. that our time is valuable and be able to put a price tag on it.
2: I yeah. think that's, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like the the few times, well, there was one show I can think of um, where I was really focused on like, I need to start selling things and making things, thinking about that. And it was just like, it really did take something with that being like such a part of the drive. It, it took something out of the spirit of making it for me, you know, like, and, and I think that if you get, super in that way it can be bad for the work and and bad for the sort of like authentic really, like i really i've always said i want to be a good person before i'm a good artist it's like sounds kind of dumb but like i do and i don't want my relationships to start feeling super transactional you know but at the same time i will say that like starting to think of myself as some kind of a business has been really empowering and good for me in the last while because i've started to go my time is valuable because yeah I started to burn out, you know. I was so yeah. tired all the time, and I, I was kind of dead inside. And I was like, well, what is dead inside going to offer any audience? Or like, you know, <laughs> especially as someone who like works with people, like I need to feel really like my heart is in what I'm doing. So, I have started to make that shift. It's a hard one, and and there's this coach that like financial coach person who's a real oddball in a great way named bear he bear. And there's someone I know out of new Orleans and they do this thing called marketing for weirdos that I did. Um, and I loved it because they just kind of leaned into the fact that like um, businesses or like, you know uh, these sort of basically making money and, and working in exchange in the ways that we do, they don't have to be part of a capitalist mindset. Like they work to kind of break down selling things and, Um, that sort of exchange of money and resources from having to necessarily be within a certain framework. And it was a subtle shift in their marketing class, but it did help me understand that I can kind of think of myself as someone who's a a business, but shift what business means, similar to the term of success, you know, um, Mm And to, you know, if I'm going to get on Instagram and try to connect with people, I never wanted to do it because I felt like I needed to perform something. And now since taking that, that class and leaning in a little bit more, I feel like I'm posting about things I really care about and like actually thinking about them and sharing with people and having meaningful connections through them. Oh, that's and way- great. Yeah. I never thought, you know, before. And so I, but I had to shift that, you know, I had to, it's like, it's weird to say, like, I wish we had another term part of why we use the terms we do is we don't have other ones like career, professional business. Like, I'm like, what are the replacement words that we could maybe find? But, but by starting to go like, I'm in business in the sense that like I don't fund nonprofit arts institutions. I don't like, I forget the word right now. Like I don't supplement them through my own blood, sweat, and tears anymore. Like if I really believe in an organization, I will work with them, but I deserve to get paid enough so that I'm, I'm okay. Like, I don't need to be rich, but just like, you know, able to pay my rent or whatever. And sometimes I've really not been able to, and you can look very successful. You know, Patty, you've said before, you can be a successful artist or famous artist, I think is the word you've used and still be poor, you know, and I don't know that I'm a famous artist, but I am still struggling, you know, with money. So yeah, anyway, those are, those are sort of some thoughts in response to that.
0: Well, that's the thing. you you can be famous and very well-known and making, I think you are really well-known and still struggle to, to pay your bills. And, uh, I think that's one of the things that is, I mean, I don't want to say it's totally unique to the art world, but it's one of the few industries where you can have that level of visibility and still really be struggling. And so I, I, you know, I think all this stuff is, is really important to be, Talking about now, I want to sort of wrap things up as we approach the hour. Um, Catherine, did you have anything else that you wanted to add before uh, we close up?
1: Oh man! <laughs> 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 well, I, you know, I just—I I really feel like uh, kind of like a protective mama bear at this point to so many people, and I feel like. But I also to myself and Megan, I really like what you said. I mean, I think for years, I just like volunteered my time and effort and intellect and did everything. And I was like, it's how you should be generous, generous. And I think you should be generous. But I also think it's it's again, it's a really it's a it's a pretty specific position to be in to be able to donate all of your time and not ask for something. And I think the conversation around money and saying, like, I'm worth something. If you want to work with me, this is what it is. Or if you want my painting, this is what it is. Um. Is, is coming around more. And I think people shouldn't be shamed if they're not able to don't donate their time or if they're not able to do a project that involves more time than they're willing. So I, I think like it's all really um, kind of you know sensitive and I, I don't want to make value judgments on it all, but I think knowing your worth is important and people respect that. And I think having a new model for what it means to run an organization or a, a business, if you will, or and if your studio is that. It doesn't have to be all bad. Um, There are so many companies really recalibrating what it means to have good culture, good um, investment. Um, the, uh, The women's soccer team out in LA, Which is founded by all women has women natalie portman is one of the founders along with a lot of other investors and celebrities they made the soccer team and all of the women on the roster get a percentage of the ticket sales i mean there is a new calibration mainly thank you to women about what it means to be invested and to work together as a collective whole and i think there's there's no reason your art life can't be um can't be sustainable and generous and critical at once if you choose it to be but i also just want to say i have I really whatever works for people, if they have some amazing commission deal with someplace and they make a living making murals at like Starbucks or Google, like great. You know, I'm not I don't judge that. I just want it to be really a soft landing when we talk about declarations of worth and value. And that, that is a really nuanced conversation. And I consider myself a full time artist, even though I don't want to use that word. And I have always had two jobs. And uh, I think my life is full. And I'm interested in contributing to culture in many ways, not just in the way of a sale and an invoice. So,
0: And Megan, do you have anything else to add?
2: Mostly, I'm just grateful for the chance to come here today. And Catherine, I'm really glad you, you know, kind of brought this idea up. I think maybe last thoughts are that for anybody who does have a lot of class privilege out there or who has less than I experienced or whatever, I just want to encourage us to not go to the place of feeling like a sense of shame about that or, you know, guilt or anything like that, as much as to say that I think it's just important for us to all practice starting to talk about it. You know, like I feel like my own work on, you know, looking at privileges I have around things like race, you know, it's it's been really rewarding powerful work to, to lean into learning to talk about things that are uncomfortable and practicing that and to just kind of understand that we're all sort of born into these systems and it's about like how we leverage the privileges we have or how we learn to see each other and the assumptions that we make that I feel like really can start to shift those things. Um, I have some friends with a lot of come from a lot of family money who I think are doing incredible work redistributing that wealth right now. They're actually helping use it to create change in the world. So I think it's just it's I really want to not seem like it's a conversation about sort of like shaming people or making it really uncomfortable to talk about. But I think practicing it is so important and just naming where we are in things. And um and this conversation today was a really nice start on that. So I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, Catherine one thing i one think last that, I think the big takeaways is i'm is, um, as i think honestly empathy but also language and i think if we can all work on it including myself just better ways to talk about our level of commitment our level of devotion and our vision then i think we're going to be in a better place and so i think it really does start with language which is difficult but um and that might mean some soft landings or nuance but uh, I think finding value in, in anyone's particular uh, path is is important, and and I think maybe talking about it with with a uh, sl- slower answers and uh, less declarations will get us uh, to a nicer place.
2: And okay, Kathy, now Megan you- has one last. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> one last thought too, which is just to, to say that this is that I so agree, Catherine. And I think that um, this is about practicing, not perfection, right? Like, it's better that we do these things and we learn to talk about things and see each other um, imperfectly than to not do it at all in like any sort of Social change practice or conversation, like it's a it's a journey to use that word, Patty. Again, you know, oh, no. but, but we're we're going towards something, and it's not like we're going to kind of arrive and go, okay, now I've got it. You know, it's constantly getting all these ideas are constantly coming in and then they're constantly coming out. But I really think it's just a practice of thinking about our words and our our assumptions about each other. Patty, what well, do you think?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean i I want to thank both of you for coming on. On the Art Problems podcast, because I feel like both of you have really uh, expanded the ways that we are talking about this subject when it comes to like the value of our labor, how we talk about our second jobs, how we talk about our jobs. I almost didn't want to say second job because I think like in a certain way, the labor is just the labor you know, and all of it with a creative practice, everything feeds in to what you're doing. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, I just, I, I think, I guess just personally, I'm filled with gratitude that I've been able to have um, such two really, really uh, intelligent women on the show who've been able to broaden the discourse a little bit. So I'm really uh, appreciative of that. And I want uh, to thank you all.
1: Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Patty. Thank Thank
0: you. you. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art podcast.